This morning's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22, the word of the Lord. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been for performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Well, in God's perfect timing, if this is not if, since this is the Sunday that we celebrate the persecuted church, what a great story to have to deal with uh, because we see the persecution in this story. And in our church, you hear us say often, the gospel changes everything. This is one of those stories where we see just that. And uh, the wonderful Kylie Lee taught me uh, uh, the breadth of the scripture by telling me uh, in a group setting what she describes as the gospel package, what God does for us, what God does in us, and what God does through us. So I'm not going to talk about that specifically, although you will see it, I hope, in this message. So ask yourself, where do I see what God is doing in Peter and John? or for Peter and John? What do I see God doing in Peter and John? And what is God doing through Peter and John? And then reverse those questions or make them more personal. What has God done for me? What is God doing in me? 
and what does God seek to do through me? So with that, uh, let's pray. Father, we uh, are so grateful that we can study your word in comfort. We are not being persecuted and hounded. We do not fear for our lives or for our property being taken. Yeah, people may laugh at us and think we're stupid and behind the times, but that is small potatoes compared to what our brothers and sisters are experiencing around the world. But nonetheless, our struggles are real. And we ask you to teach us this morning, uplift us and strengthen us and edify us through the story of Peter and John before the council. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in this story, we're going to see that Jesus's resurrection provokes spiritual transformation. Um, and that spiritual transformation is evident in this incredible desire to share the good news about Jesus and to share that with both boldness and humility, even in the face of opposition. Um, so this is one of those stories in the Bible where it's really important to understand the context in which it occurs because the context just brings it to life and it makes you see how something that happened uh, over a thousand years ago is relevant to us today, all right? So now Peter and John had gone to the temple for afternoon prayers. And at the temple, Jesus, uh, John, Peter and John came upon a lame man who had been lame from his birth. He was now over 40 years old. And it was his practice to come to the temple regularly to ask for alms. Um, and at the temple, Peter and John looked at the man intently and the man seeing that they were looking at him, he returned uh, the stare. And so Peter and John, and the man was expecting maybe gold or some money and Peter and John said, look, gold and silver we don't have, but what we do have we give to you freely in the name of Jesus Christ, be healed, stand up. And Peter lifted down, lifted up the man and he walked. And the man was just overcome, as you might imagine, with joy. I mean, he, he, he's sitting there and I'm, I'm just guessing that when Peter reaches out his hand, the man is really confused because Peter ought to know that he can't stand and yet he feels something happening in his body and something happening in his spirit that he really can stand. And he stands up and he's stable. And he starts jumping and leaping around. And this is so exciting, so unexpected that people, the word just spreads like wildfire. And Peter and John are surrounded um, by people uh, and this man. So here's this little group, Peter, John, and the lame man whose name we have not been given. Peter has preached the gospel to them and told them that they are responsible, in, that they didn't know that the Lord God of the universe died on the cross for their sakes. Um, and they are preaching the gospel without restraint. Now, 
you have to understand the setting. This is only a few months after the crucifixion. And sometimes when we read the scripture, it seems like the Jews are really fickle. You know, one minute they're behind Jesus and the next minute they want him crucified. But when you look at the story, remember that Jesus was arrested, beaten and tried on Passover. And on Passover, everybody's in their house. They don't go out. Jerusalem is absolutely quiet. And the trials take place purposely. And the Sanhedrin, the, the rulers of Israel, the, the priests, they want to get this trial done and the crucifixion begun before people realize what's going on. So that's one of the reasons it's imperative that it be done on the night of Passover. So by the time Jesus is crucified, most people have gone back out of Jerusalem. Uh, they're coming, beginning to come back in uh, to, to celebrate pa the, the, the day after Passover, and they haven't no heard anything. And, and there's this man on a cross, and he's unrecognizable. And there are some of the leaders of Israel around the cross jeering at Jesus. And so for a lot of people, this happened in secret without them knowing. They, they have yet to figure out what's going on. I remember there's no Twitter feed in Jerusalem. There's no Facebook page and CNN is not reporting anything. So it's, people are beginning to, to wake up and months later, here is, here are John and Peter telling the people what happened and they're going, what? So the crowd is amazing. And the passage tells us that 5,000 men were coming to faith in just a day based on the healing of the lame beggar. Now, Peter is preaching the resurrection. And the first thing, who was there? The scribes and the Pharisees, I mean, um, um, so let me not rush ahead of myself. The temple guards, which is like the police force for the temple, and the Sadducees come running out to this scene because the Sadducees believe only in the first five books of the Bible and they don't believe in the resurrection. And here, Peter and John are not only preaching the resurrection from the dead, but that the Jewish leadership has been involved in crucifying the Messiah. And so that if people begin to believe that there is a resurrection from the dead in mass, the Sadducees lose their political power. They lose their influence. And so they are the first ones to rush out with the temple guards to figure out what is going on. And Peter and John preaching the resurrection of the dead. And so, uh, and letting the people know that the leadership, unbeknownst to many of the people still, were conspired to crucify Messiah. So who arrested Peter and John? Verses one through three says, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. So the arresting group consisted of rulers, elders, scribes, 
the priests made up a significant portion of the Sanhedrin. Um, that was sort of the arresting group. They're put in prison, and then they were uh, questioned now by the whole group. So you don't just have the Sadducees and the temple guards, you have the full Sanhedrin, and you have the rulers of Israel who were not necessarily the priests, but other men of, of influence. Um, it's likely that the priests are now driving the, uh, the driving force behind persecuting Peter and John. And it says that on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes together gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and basically the high, whole high priestly family. This is the same group that had condemned Jesus to the cross just months earlier. Um, so to, here they are now confronted with a real major problem. It is now being revealed to the people as a group that they were involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. It wasn't what Pontius Pilate had done, it's what they had done in conspiracy with Pontius Pilate. So Peter and John now are standing before sort of the equivalent of the United States Congress and the US Supreme Court, the same body that condemned Jesus to death. And there is always the threat of excommunication. To us, it's no big deal. You don't like our church, we discipline you, you don't like it, you go down the street. You can't do that in Israel. All of the social and religious life revolves around the temple in Jerusalem or the synagogue in your area. If you are excommunicated from the temple, from the temple in Jerusalem, you have no role in Israel. You are cast out as a loner. You lose your friends and you lose your family. So now let's, let's take a, a, a look of the spiritual transformation that we see in Peter and John. Let's take a closer look at them because it's easy to forget that Peter and John were ordinary people through whom God did extraordinary things. So reading verse 13, now when they, the arresting and charging group, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished now, remember, they were just fishermen. They were common. The, the Greek word that's used there for uneducated has the sense of illiterate. I doubt that they were illiterate, but that's the sense. You and I would call them country bumpkins. Not only that, not only were they common, uneducated men, untrained in scripture, they had not sat under the teaching of any recognized rabbi. but they were also two utter failures. Two utter failures who stood before this powerful, august body. Remember back at the time of Jesus' arrest, the scripture tells us in Mark 14 that they all left him and fled. They ran away. Peter, as Jesus prophesied, would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. There was one unidentified disciple among them who was so afraid and frightened so much, 
He actually ran out of his clothes, dropped them, and just ran into the night. That's what it was like. And after all this, the disciples and apostles had abandoned, I'm trying to get in the light. There, that's a little better. I know, hold it. <laughs> nah. That is the extent of my high technology right there. So all the disciples had abandoned the ministry and returned to their secular occupations. And yet here they are a few months after the resurrection, and Peter and John are boldly proclaiming Jesus before the supreme secular and religious authority in Israel. And the arresting people recognize that these men had been with Jesus. So what happened? Two things. First, the resurrection. And second, Pentecost, the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit who gave them understanding of everything Jesus had been telling them while they were with him in his three-year ministry, but which they did not get. So they're asked, by what power or by what name do you do this? This is a question that really should dominate our own lives personally, our self-reflection and our, our meditation, our word and, and, and deeds. We should be asking ourselves pretty regularly, by what power and by what authority am I acting or speaking or thinking? Anyway, Peter tells them, this is Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter and John are boldly proclaiming to this august body who had condemned Jesus to crucifixion that they are guilty of killing Messiah but that Messiah had risen from the grave. And Peter and John gave all the credit to Jesus. This is really important. They didn't take the credit upon themselves. They said, we only do this because of the name and power of Jesus Christ. This is not power that we have. It is power that Christ works in us to heal this lame man. It is Jesus who healed the lame man. We were just his instruments. We did not do this. I remember years ago, I used to say, I look on it with shame, that, that I led so-and-so to Christ. I never say that anymore. We don't lead a single person to Christ. We share Christ. We exemplify Christ. But it is the Holy Spirit who leads people to Christ. Well, the resurrection and the arrival of the Holy Spirit are facts, real events. And these facts apply to everyone who receives the salvation of Jesus Christ. And so we get transformed, we get a new identity when we understand that Jesus died for us 
Old things are passed away. All things have become new. We are new creatures in Christ. A story from uh, not too distant headlines. And you may have read about this. In 2015, the Islamic State terrorist group captured a group of 22 men who were working. They were just out working. 21 of them were Coptic Christians. And the other was a young African man who was not a Christian. The Islamic terrorists lined them up on a beach, had them kneel, and told them that if they denied Christ, they could live. But if they did not deny Christ, if they asserted the deity of Christ, they would be beheaded right there on the spot. So they started on one end, and they asked the man, do you profess Christ? Is he your savior? Yes. And we do. It went down to all 21 men and finally came to the, the African at the end, and they asked him, do you profess the name of Jesus Christ? And his words were, their God is my God. He had watched 21 men fearlessly proclaim the name of Christ in the face of certain death. And he knew that the God who could lead ordinary men to make that sacrifice is the God who would save him. And so when the question came, he didn't say, I don't know anything about this. He said, their God is my God. These men were all ordinary men, but God used them to compel an extraordinary witness. Now, a few of us are going to face that kind of challenge. For most of us, the challenges are just about living in a fallen world. The fact of the resurrection and the fact of the indwelling spirit enable us to live daily lives for Jesus. I remember it had to be 25 years ago. I was at a diner early morning having a quiet time in Mission Valley. And, and I said to God, God, you know that I'm willing to die for you. And instantly the voice right inside my head said, yes, Bill, I know. But will you live for me? Man. I just started weeping in the restaurant. The identity that Christ gives us because of his crucifixion and resurrection, because of the indwelling Holy Spirit is that we experienced a spiritual transformation that is done to us through what Jesus Christ has done for us so that we live for him day by day, whatever our circumstances. Like Chad said earlier today, some of us are going through really difficult times. 
For some of us right now, things are rocking along pretty well. And for some of us, we're on a ship and we can see the storm clouds right ahead and we have no rudder. We know that we are going into those storm clouds and all we can do is hold on to the vessel and ask God to take us through it. The spiritual transformation that Peter and John experienced is available to everyone who believes Jesus. Now, the spiritual transformation compelled them to share the good news with the lame and the broken. The love of telling people about Jesus and what he does for us. The man Peter and John healed had been lame since birth and he was now over 40 or 40 years old. And here's one of the things. Peter and John could have felt disqualified to do anything. We wouldn't have been able to criticize them much if they had said, what is, I mean, what, what can we do? We don't have any money. Sometimes we get stuck in our before picture when God is asking us to be enthralled by the after picture. We are daily surrounded by people who are broken and lame. Some of us have been broken and lame. And some of us are broken and lame right now. But when we are caught up in our own failures, we cannot see the or have the energy to deal with the wounded among us. Not, we may not be able to tell a lame man to walk through the power of the Holy Spirit, but we can visit him. We can go grocery shopping with him or for him. We can drive him to and from his doctor's appointments. We can sit by his bedside and just cheer him up or her up as she goes to this particular problem. I remember when I was a trial lawyer, I was preparing to take the deposition of a psychiatrist. And he had relied on certain uh, transcripts to form his opinion. And in reading through what he was relying on, I came across the story of a, a psychiatrist who was interviewed uh, about people who are in sanatoriums, what is sometimes called insane asylums. And he was asked, well, what can you do to help people in this situation? And the psychiatrist said that most of them could get out if they could be forgiven. And maybe you are that person, you've done something in the past of which you are so ashamed that you cannot forgive yourself and you believe the forgiveness of Jesus Christ is not available to you. That is a lie. Jesus Christ's salvation and forgiveness is available to every person who asks, not to the clean, to the dirty. Not to the well, but to the broken. Our extraordinary God specializes in using very ordinary people. I mean, let's look at some famous people from scripture. I mean, we know this, we should know that this is true. 
I mean, Noah drank too much, but God used him. Abraham and Sarah were an old, washed-up couple, and Abraham had basically sold his wife into slavery twice. Joseph was an entitled teenager who went through God's classroom to learn humility. Moses was a stutterer and a murderer, a fugitive. Rahab was a prostitute. Esther, an adopted orphan. Sharing the gospel in difficult confrontations like what Peter and John experienced is really hard. Healing the lame man is the kind of confrontation we love. I mean, I aspire to that. I would love to be able to walk out or go through a hospital ward and say, in the name of Jesus Christ, be healed. Man, that would be, man, just think of my, what my Twitter feed would look like after a day like that. But sharing the gospel can also put us in difficult situations. Uh, sharing with a friend, sharing at a family gathering. Now, the situation Peter and John were in was designed to intimidate them and shut them up. So here, let me read verse 21. Put them into custody until the next day. Now, normally, this would be an intimidating experience for Peter and John. Suddenly arrested by greatly disturbed uh, officials, handled roughly, that is, they are pushed around and and when they're arrested, threats made against them and thrown in the jail. The entire atmosphere was done deliberately to intimidate these two men. And yet Peter and John experienced a trans spiritual transformation that enabled them to confront this problem with boldness and humility. Now, boldness without humility can lead to arrogance, pushiness, Self-righteousness. Their boldness was forthright, but it was not in your face. Now, humility without boldness can simply be timidity. We excuse ourselves from taking action. I mean, you know, after all, I'm just one person. What can I do? Or I didn't go to school. Or look at my problems. I don't have any money. I, I, I'm too insignificant to make a difference. Peter and John had no army, no organization, no cash of money to foment a movement. They were just two. They were inexperienced in leadership. Jesus had commanded them not to fight back. They were not militant. They were opposed by institutions that had been in place for hundreds of years. They didn't even have a website. But Peter and John were bold and humble. Now, Peter and John could have been in the faces of their arrestors. But Peter addressed the council as rulers and elders of Israel, which is a sign of respect. I mean, I don't know about you, but this is surprising. We would expect him to shout denunciations, but he is showing respect to the ones who crucified 
the Lord. How is that possible? Also, this is the same John who with his brother James were called the sons of thunder because they had such fiery tempers and once had asked Jesus who hadn't been received in a proper way whether they should call down lightning from heaven to immediately kill the detractors. He said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Oh man, they were ready. And Jesus said, you don't know what manner of spirit you are of. The rulers and the elders were in a tight space. They were ripe for this kind of denunciation. Verse 16, they're saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. The rulers and the elders could not formally arrest them and charge them with a crime. There are a mass of people out there waiting to hear more from Peter and John because of this clear miracle that had been done in their presence. And remember, the text tells us that over 5,000 men had come to faith that day. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Now, Peter and John were not in the council's face. They didn't call for civil unrest. They didn't call for an insurrection against the established order. Even though the city was boiling with excitement about the healing of the lame man. Why didn't Peter and John lead an insurrection? Why didn't Peter and John hold up their fists and just curse them out and denounce them? Now, the fact that they said, you killed the Messiah is a fact. But I submit to you, they weren't foaming at the mouth when they said that. It was a clear statement of fact that none of them could deny. So why didn't they act? out against the rulers and elders because Peter and John knew that while the elders and rulers were the instruments of Jesus' death, Peter and John were the reason he died. This fact allowed Peter and John to speak boldly and yet remain humble. They were not the righteous speaking to the unrighteous. They were not the high and mighty speaking to the lowly. They were saved sinners speaking to unsaved sinners. They were wretched men speaking to other wretched men. We live in what is popularly now called the cancel culture. Everybody is ultra sensitive to whatever group they identify with. You have to be careful what you say and how you say it. And we're so ready to jump in someone's face if they use the wrong word. 
We're just ready to fight. We're ready to condemn. But when we receive the salvation of Jesus Christ, then we have said, I am a wretched sinner and God has not given me what I deserve. Rather, God has put onto Jesus what I deserve. I am utterly beholden to Jesus in every area of my life. There is no room for self-righteousness in my life. I remember being at a Bible study 20 years ago and I was the young Turk. All of the others were older men and they were civic leaders and I was a bit proud that they had invited me to join this, this group. And one day, and we met every two weeks at a restaurant that doesn't exist here anymore, the Mission Valley Inn, at, from 7 to 8.30. And they had brought in a guy named Doug Coe, powerful Christian. He wasn't the speaker, he was just visiting. And he was sitting on this corner and I was sitting right next to him at this corner. And I, I must have been spouting off self-righteously about something. I don't remember what it was, but I know I was being really self-righteous. And after the, and every one of us rotated. Every, every time we met, some new person led the group. Doug Coe, while everybody was kind of celebrating, talking and chit-chatting, he just leaned over and he asked me one question very quietly no one else could hear. And, he, and the question was this, Bill, what about Jesus? And all of a sudden I saw the filthiness of my self-righteousness in front of me. There it was. And it was standing between me and the cross. And I just broke down and sobbed again. As you can tell, I'm a weeper. <laughs> you don't want to share too much with me because I'm going to start weeping in front of you. The older I get, the weepier I get. And everybody was shocked. They, didn't, they hadn't heard anything. Doug didn't say, well, I had to chastise my brother for self-righteousness. He didn't say anything. He just put his arm around me. I wept for 10 minutes. It changed my life. We who are believers recognize that we deserve death and separation from God for eternity. But Jesus took our sins upon himself voluntarily on the cross. And he does not look down at the corridor of time and say, if I knew Maturin was going to do this, I never would have died for him. He knew everything I would think, say, and do that violated his best for me. And he nonetheless agreed to die for me. I have absolutely no right to be self-righteous. So we are able to speak the truth in community with boldness And with humility, one wretch speaking to another wretch about the goodness of God.
Let's pray. Oh, I forget. I have one little application. All biblical confrontation is based on the fact that we are horrible sinners saved by a gracious and loving God who reaches out to save the unlovely and unworthy among whom we number ourselves. Now let's pray. God, we thank you for the example of Peter and John. We thank you for their powerful witness and for the task that you have given us, the joyful task of telling other people about the goodness of God. Give us eyes to see the lame and broken, the boldness to speak out, and the humility to speak the truth in love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.